Good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday morning, which means it's Bible study time. We are here live to be with you as we continue this Genesis study. We are on chapter 37 today of Genesis, and I hope that you have your Bibles ready and that you are ready to join me here. Chapter 37 of Genesis is really an excellent story. We are ready to go. Um, just going to give everyone a minute to pop in, open their Bibles to chapter 37, and we'll get started. Chapter 37 is one of my favorite chapters because it begins the story of Joseph. And Joseph is brilliant. It is the most fun story, I think, in Genesis for sure. And really, it's one of my most favorite stories in the entire Bible. Um, so the big arc of the story here with Joseph is important for us to note. That big arc is how the Israelites get to Egypt. So as I think most of us know, the arc of the story of the Israelites and the Jews, ultimately the Jews, is that they have this covenant with God. Abraham receives this promise from God and they try to figure out what this means. And ultimately they land in Egypt and they're in Egypt for 400 years in slavery. And then Moses arrives on the scene, takes them out of Egypt. They go to Sinai, they receive the commandments and they become Jewish. And so Joseph is really critical here because he's kind of like the hinge that gets us from what was the covenantal period, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then to Joseph. And Joseph gets all of Jacob and his family into Egypt that creates the need to be taken out of Egypt in the end, in the Exodus. And so Joseph is critical. And fair warning, because I love this story. So we're pretty much going to read the entire chapter 37 today at some point in our study. So reminder that last week we really set the stage for Jacob's family. Jacob was a very dynamic character in our story. He did a lot of stuff. And ultimately, Jacob's sons and daughters matter in our story because they will ultimately be the tree of Israel in the future. And so Jacob has gotten back to his hometown, to his homeland, and he has lost both his father and his beloved wife, Rachel. And so we pick up the story here in chapter 37. Let's start with verse Actually, we're going to start with a prayer before we jump in to verse 30 to verse um, one of chapter 37. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we come to you today with grateful hearts that even though the world around us seems to be so uncertain and so insecure, we trust in you. We believe that you will help turn any bad experience we have, any bad choice we make into something good, that we, through our faithfulness, can be part of your glory and extending your kingdom here on earth. God, we come to you today and ask your prayers and your blessings and your presence upon all those who are ill, those who care for those who are ill, and those who put their har themselves in harm's way for the good of their neighbors. May they know your presence, know your strength, and gain courage for the work that they have to do. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, also, before we jump into chapter 37, I did get a couple questions last week. Um, and so I want to remind you that Monica Rosser is kind of navigating the comment thread on Facebook. She's helping me while I'm teaching to sift through some of the comments and to give me some of the good questions. Um, so those questions you can ask right below and Monica will kind of receive them and then text me so that I can pay attention to actually speaking to the camera, even though no one here is in the room with me. Um, so do make a comment. Um, Monica is there to help navigate those comments and we'll get to them live as we can. But I did receive a question after last week's Bible study that I'll start with. Um, the question is, uh, Chris said earlier in the class that the Old Testament 
that the Jewish people use is not the same as the Christian Bible. And she says, you know, did he really say that? And what does he mean? Um, so let me tell you what I mean by that. You've if you've been with me for this year in Genesis, you know that I refer to the Old Testament as the Old Testament. I don't refer to it as the Hebrew Bible, and that is not an accident or being insensitive. That's intentional because the Hebrew scriptures are a particular set of books in a particular order. The Christian Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, the Christian Bible, Old Testament, is many of those same books, almost the exact same books, but they're not in the same order. Because if you think about it, the Jewish canon, the Hebrew Bible, is telling a particular story, the history of the Jewish people and the way that the Jewish people have overcome adversity time and time again, have remained faithful to God time and time again as a way of encouraging people today to overcome adversity and remain faithful to God. For Christians, the Old Testament stories don't stop with remain faithful to God and overcome adversity. They actually continue to point toward Jesus. And so those scriptures have been reordered in a way such that the Old Testament actually ends with a pointing toward the coming Messiah. And so that's why in the New Testament, we kick right off with Matthew and the birth of that Messiah. Because of that, even though pretty much the books themselves are the same, by reordering the books, the story that is told is actually a very different story, and those differences matter a lot. And so, yes, in general, your Jewish friends and mine would pretty much know all the books in our Old Testament, but it's telling a different arc of a story. And so Christians use a different set, which to me means it's really different because we can't just call it the same and deny that those differences matter and are material to us. Um, so I hope that that answers that question. And I loved a comment I got just a day ago, um, someone who has joined recently this class and went back and over the last couple of weeks have been listening to all of the recordings on our website, which is linked right up here if you want to go back and listen to some of the earlier classes. And she said that she was listening to a radio show here in Dallas by one of our very popular preachers talking about how the coronavirus, COVID-19, is part of God's plan, that this pandemic is part of God's plan. And what I loved is that she said, I heard you weeks and weeks ago say that the idea of God planning bad things just does not gel with the kind of God we see revealed in Christ. What does make sense is that when those bad things happen, God is with us, walking with us, sustaining us, even carrying us through those bad things, and that with God, we can turn any bad thing into something good, that God inspires us to turn the bad into the good. And her comment to me was that understanding God that way has made such a huge impact on her during this very stressful period where lots of people are worried and anxious and concerned about the state of our world. And I think it's important for us as we read through the story of Joseph to also be confident that God's not doing bad stuff to us. But whenever bad things happen, God is absolutely with us. God knows what it means to hurt God knows what it means to mourn. God knows what it means to weep. And God stays with us every step of the way. Okay, let's jump into this story of Joseph, chapter 37. So open up your scripture, your Bible, chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children, because he was the son of his old age. And he had made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, 
they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Okay, so let's start with how do we get from kind of Jacob to Joseph? Because this really is the pivot away from Jacob as the central character to Joseph as the central character. So most of you likely remember that Jacob had at least four wives and that with those four wives, he will ultimately have 12 sons that will root the 12 tribes of Israel. And Joseph is his 11th son, the first son of his beloved Rachel. So if we remember way back weeks ago, chapters ago, Jacob went to find a wife and he immediately fell in love with Rachel. And he worked for seven years to be able to marry Rachel, but then he was duped on his wedding night into marrying Leah. So Jacob worked another seven years, was able to marry Rachel whom he loved. And because Rachel was his favorite, he was, effectively, well, because Rachel was his favorite, the way the storyteller tells the story is that Leah was blessed to have the first son. And Leah ultimately has six sons. Zilpah and Bilhah have another four sons. And finally, Rachel is able to get pregnant. And Rachel's first son, Jacob's 11th son, is Joseph. And so naturally, because Jacob loved Rachel most, Rachel's first son, Joseph, becomes Jacob's favorite. Now, becoming Jacob's favorite is not going to work out that well. So let's see what we learn. There's some important information about Joseph here in these opening verses of chapter 37. First, we learn that Joseph is a helpful and a hard worker. This is going to prove very good for Joseph because Joseph is going to get himself into some sticky situations and Joseph will be a hard worker through those sticky situations and that will be part of what helps save him. Joseph, being a hard worker, is also a rule follower. Joseph loves the rules. And when I was a kid, I would have called Joseph a goody-goody or a tattletale. And that probably says more about me than it does about Joseph. Um, But Joseph really is that strict rule follower. Joseph is, as I mentioned, Jacob's favorite. And that's just just not going to work out well. And we find out here in these first verses that Joseph being Jacob's favorite means that Joseph gets this special long robe with sleeves. And if you're thinking like me, it's his amazing Technicolor dream coat. You are right. This is Jacob giving Joseph his preferential treatment, treating Joseph differently from than his other brothers. And finally, we learn that Jacob's favoritism of Joseph makes Joseph's brothers hate him. That's a strong word. Hate is not something we see very often in the Bible. And yes, hate is used here. Joseph's brothers hate him for being their father's favorite. Now let's keep going. Second part of today's lesson is going to be about Joseph's dreams. Um, I'm going to pause right there in case there are any questions in the thread about Joseph himself, about the way we get to Joseph um, and what Jacob, kind of his preference of Joseph. Any questions in there? I'm not seeing any. So keep thinking about your questions, and we'll address those as we go through um, as soon as they pop up. First section of the lesson, Joseph, we learn a lot about Joseph. Second section of today's lesson is going to be about Joseph's dreams. Let's look at verse 5. Once Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Listen to this dream that I dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Suddenly, my sheaf rose and stood upright. Then your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to have dominion over us? So they hated him even more because of his dreams and his words. All right, we're going to pause right there. This is the first of a pair of dreams that Joseph has here at the beginning of chapter 37. And can we just imagine Joseph's predicament in his family? Um, We know that Joseph's the rule follower, the hard worker. He's the favorite. But he's also the 11th son 
of much bigger brothers. So here Joseph is, the small one, and his brothers are bigger, they are probably stronger, they are doing more, and Joseph is trying to keep up, trying to be a big brother like his bigger brothers. And trying to be big means that he probably has a relatively naive opinion of how much he should share. So, poor naive Joseph. He shares a little too much. And any of us with siblings know what you say and what you don't say, or how you say something and how you do not say something. And I think we can all say, this is one of those do not do moments with Joseph. And any of us reading through this are probably thinking, oh, Joseph, Joseph, don't stop, Joseph. Rein it in, Joseph. Don't tell him the story, Joseph, because this is not going to be helpful to you. And so Joseph doesn't heed what would be, I suppose, um, just conventional wisdom. Tells them the story of how they are all worshiping him, all of his bigger brothers worshiping him. And as if that wasn't enough, Joseph had another dream. Look at verse 9. He had another dream and told it to his brothers, saying, Look, I have had another dream. The sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What kind of dream is this that you have had? Shall we indeed come, I and your mother and your brothers, and bow down to the ground before you? So his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Excuse me. I think we all totally understand that this is a crazy moment for Joseph. He's already told his brothers that he had this amazing dream, and here he's telling his father that everyone's going to be bowing down to him. It's not just his brothers. As if Joseph did not learn the first time, he doubles down and he says, everybody is going to be worshiping me. It's <laughs> just, I read the story and I think, you know, I wonder if Joseph has any idea what he is teeing himself up to do. So here in this moment, Jacob takes issue with Joseph's dream. It might be okay for Joseph to be better than his brothers, but Jacob's saying, hold up. It's maybe not okay that you're thinking that you're better than us too. So let's talk about what these dreams tell us about Joseph and about God. First, there's no mention of God in these dreams. There's no mention that these dreams come from God. There's no mention of God um, creating the opportunity for Joseph to receive these dreams. And I think that naturally, because many of us know this whole story, we kind of just read that in, right? We feel like that's implied that God is a part of these dreams. But I want us to be good, critical readers, to really study critically and to see that God is not mentioned. It's very important that we know that God is not mentioned because it helps us to see a bit more that perhaps God isn't planning every single moment of our lives, but instead God is present with us in every single moment of our lives and can help us turn anything bad into something good. And for Joseph, these dreams are going to turn out kind of bad. So the Bible regularly uses dreams to indicate a spiritual truth, right? Where God is somehow trying to get a message across to Joseph. It is just fine for us to look at this whole story and to say that God is intending to provide these dreams to Joseph in order to create an opportunity for Joseph to do something profound, to point to God's glory. But I want us to make sure that we hold a theological interpretation over on one side and that we are very fair about what is and is not written in these stories. Now, as we get to the end of this section, I want to encourage you again to ask some questions. Um, I know we got one question from Pastor Law that says, does God play favorites? So I think that's a brilliant question because we here in this story cannot deny that Joseph is Jacob's favorite. Now, anyone out there with children 
more than one child knows that one of the questions you just don't answer is who is your favorite, right? And parents have an infinite number of creative ways to decline answering that question, right? You're all my favorites. Oh, I love you all equally. Oh, I can't, and on and on and on. Jacob seems not to have that issue. Jacob just goes right on ahead and says Joseph is his favorite. Not only does he say Joseph is his favorite, but he offers Joseph markings like the coat that really show that Joseph is his favorite. It's kind of wild because it really puts a target on Joseph's back. Let's then talk about whether God has favorites. So the quick answer is, of course, not no. But let's flesh that out just a little bit. The author of this story or the authors of this story seem very clear that Jacob can have a favorite as a parent. God is often described for us as our parent, our father. That kind of description of God is a very important way for us to attempt to understand God. We will never fully understand God, but we can at least try. And one of the ways that we try to understand God is like a parent who loves their child, that kind of sacrificial love, that total love, that love that is complete and constant. Even though the idea of parent and child, God to us, fails in the end to be the complete way of understanding God, it's a good try. For God to have favorites means that we somehow have to live up to God. And I think that what we learn in the gospel is that God's grace and love come to us, period. We do not earn God's love. We receive God's love. And then we respond to God's love. That's what we do at baptism. That's what we do when we profess faith, when we renew our baptismal covenant, when we make choices that are godly rather than worldly. We are choosing again and again and again to respond to the love that we have received from God. And that's a critical understanding of what it means to be a Christian disciple. For us to look at the Bible, there is a lot of difference in the way that the story is told over time. Yet, we begin with the lens of Christ. All of these stories for Christians need to be read through the lenses of Jesus and how Jesus lived and what Jesus taught us. So when we look at an Old Testament story like the one of Joseph, although we can certainly learn some good truths, those truths are only so far as they fit within the paradigm or the revelation that we receive from Jesus himself. Thank you. It's a great question. Let's move on to the third and final section of chapter 37. Is, and as you probably have noted, it's before, half, it's before 11 o'clock, and I'm never in the last section um, before 11 o'clock. That's because this last section is the most significant of the entire chapter. This is when kind of stuff gets real. Okay, let's look chapter 37 again, verse 17. We're going to start in the middle of verse 17. Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him and we shall see what will become of his dreams. Holy crap. I know there's always a holy crap moment in almost every chapter of Genesis, but this is that moment where all of a sudden, whatever we thought was kind of innocent and problematic now becomes wicked. Joseph's brothers are out working in the field and Joseph is going off to look for them. And when they see him coming across the field, they begin to conspire against him and not just conspire against him. Like let's beat him up or break his leg, which would be bad enough, but no, they conspire to kill him. This is some serious business. And in this moment, we realize that Joseph, his favoritism, his rule following, his dreaming and his naivety to share all those dreams, 
is really going to get him in trouble. Reuben steps in. Look at verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. <clears throat> so let's consider the setup here. Jacob, as we remember, is the deceiver. Jacob has earned that title. Jacob did a lot of things wrong. Before he ever even left his home to find a wife, Jacob was deceiving everyone, his brother, his father, and that kind of deception is possibly catching up with Jacob here. Jacob's deception, even if maybe he has turned over a new leaf and tried to do something different here back in his hometown, has still kind of bled down into his sons. His sons have sort of inherited this deception from their father, this personality disorder from their father. And when push comes to shove and they get mad and they get angry, they get homicidal. And so they see Joseph coming and they decide they're going to kill him. Thankfully, Reuben steps in and Reuben says, hey, listen, <laughs> let's not kill him. Let's just sort of teach him a lesson, right? Throw him into the pit. He'll be scared. He will be so frightened that maybe he'll stop being such a twerp. But Reuben, from the start, wants to come back and get Joseph. Reuben wants to rescue Joseph. And so Reuben has no desire to actually leave Joseph out there. He thinks, leave him in the pit. Imagine being out in the middle of nowhere and there's a pit and you're left there and you don't know for how long, you'd be scared out of your mind. I mean, in a way, and we're going to see this, this is sort of like mafia stuff. And so Reuben says, throw him in the pit. And just as a quick aside, when it says, when the scripture says the pit was empty, there was no water in it. Remember where these people live. So if we think all the way back to Abraham, right? Abraham came south through the land of Canaan and where it was easy to grow anything, people were already living. And so Abraham had to settle kind of south, southeast of the fertile land, effectively out in the desert. It's not super desert, but it's desert enough to where raising plants is not easy. The water is scarce and they certainly go through periods of real drought. And so they live in a place where they keep these pits effectively like cisterns so that when the rainy season comes with maybe hopefully a little bit of a flood season, they're able to gather as much water as possible in these cisterns out in the desert to help sustain them through the periods of doubt. This is obviously a period of drought. And so this pit was empty and there was no water in it. This is the kind of place where they throw Joseph. So this is large and it is deep. And so Joseph is not easily climbing out of this pit. And so it's scary. At this point in the story, Reuben saves Joseph, convinces his brothers not to kill him, but it doesn't quite work out the way Reuben probably hoped. Let's look at verse 25. Then they sat down to eat, all the brothers, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels carrying gum, balm, and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profits what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Now, I just want to say for a minute, this is cold. I mean, this is cold hearted. This is like heart of steel here. <clears throat> they have just put Joseph in a pit 
And as I mentioned, this pit is scary. This pit is not a feel-good experience. And I have to imagine that Joseph is freaking out. Joseph is probably screaming, crying, wailing, begging his brothers to please take him out of the pit. This is not going to be some pastoral situation. Joseph is going to be yelling from this pit. And what do his brothers do? They sit down to eat. Wow. His brothers seriously hate him. Over the fits of fear that Joseph is likely yelling out of this pit, his brother seems to just casually sit down and eat. Yes, they've decided not to kill Joseph, but this is still not a good situation. Joseph is uncertain of his future, and his brother's just chilling out, up at the top, having some lunch. Now, Reuben tried to save Joseph's life, but Judah has a, albeit wicked, but clever idea. He says, hey, you know what? Joseph is our brother. I don't know why that matters now. I mean, it didn't matter before when they were talking about killing him. But for some reason, Judah says, hey, you know, we shouldn't kill him because he is our brother at least. So instead of killing him, let's what? Sell him into slavery? I mean, it's a wild scenario here that for some reason, killing him is not okay because he's their brother, but selling him into slavery is okay. Judah has this moment, it's crazy, and the other brothers seem to think it's a good idea. You know, it's better that maybe Joseph just goes missing than that they have his blood on their hands, which makes them not only evil, but weak. Before we go on to the next section, I want to make a note about Ishmaelites and Midianites, because close readers, you good scholars, are probably wondering, wait a minute, so we hear, we hear of Ishmaelites, then we hear of Midianites, and then back to Ishmaelites, and who are these people? So you'll remember that Ishmael was the other son of Abraham, right? Ishmael and then Isaac. Ishmael went south when he had to leave Abraham's camp, and Ishmael became, kind of in the historic sense, a good trader. And so Ishmaelites is not necessarily referencing a descendant of Ishmael, but instead acknowledging that they there were traitors going back and forth. Remember, I've said before that Israel, um, the nation of Israel, kind of modern Israel, and of course Canaan back then, was the land bridge, so to speak, between the Asia Minor and Asia in general, and also Africa. So Egypt represented that kind of African wealth, and then the Asia Minor wealth, and in order to trade between those two massive superpowers, people would regularly go through Israel because otherwise it was desert and Israel would be able to provide safe place to stay, water, food, and that sort of stuff. And so here we've got these traders, these Ishmaelites coming through, which makes a decent amount of sense. Um, and they're also referred to as Midianites. In a sense, what we have here is Ishmaelites is that catch-all term for people who trade, those travelers between major economies who trade, merchants, if you will. Midianites are almost a subset, a specific group of people. Midian was one of, was a descendant of one of Abraham's other wives. We learned that in chapter 25. So the Midianites are related, so to speak, to Jacob and his family, but they're very distant relatives. And so these Midianites, Ishmaelites, are effectively two, you know, one of, one of the same. Um, but so we can use those terms interchangeably. We probably shouldn't. Um, but that's the way that the storyteller is doing so here. And so effectively what Judah and his brothers do is they hand Joseph over to distant cousins who are on their way down to Egypt to sell some stuff. And so they're going to convince these traders that they can add Joseph to their list of stuff to sell. Let's look at chapter, I mean, at verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. He returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where can I turn? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. 
They had the long robe with sleeves taken to their father, and they said, This we have found. See now whether it is your son's robe or not. He recognized it and said, This is my son's robe. A wild animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters sought to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father bewailed him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. A lot happens in these last verses of chapter 37. And honestly, this is a tragic scene. Here we have Jacob in his old age, likely hoping that all his troubles are behind him. But he experiences this profound grief at the death of his son, of his favorite son. Now remember, Joseph is... Jacob's favorite son because Joseph is Jacob's favorite wife's first son. So Rachel, before this chapter, earlier in the story, has already died. Rachel, who was Jacob's beloved, not just one of his wives, but his principal wife, his favorite wife, maybe the only wife he really wanted to have. Rachel has already died. And if any of you know, losing a spouse is tragic, right? Many of you out there have likely lost a spouse or know someone who has, and you know that that pain is immense. But seeing the child that perhaps you had with that person is hopefully a reminder of the love that you shared, right? So effectively, after Rachel's death, Jacob is reminded of Rachel when he looks into the face of Joseph. But now Joseph is gone. Joseph, who has reminded Jacob of his number one love, is now died as well. Joseph, his favorite son, the one that he favorited so clearly among his other children, is now dead. So there is a double tragedy here. Not only does Jacob lose his favorite son, but Jacob loses the reminder of his beloved wife who is gone. It's, it's a very sad scene. Now, to his credit, Reuben tried to do something right here. You know, Reuben, in the beginning, convinced his brothers not to kill Joseph and instead put him in the pit. Okay, that's good. And then once Reuben apparently walked away from the pit while the other brothers were having a meal and Judah convinced everyone to sell Joseph and all of that happened, apparently in Reuben's absence, Reuben comes back sees that they have done something horrible to Joseph and knows that this will be received by his father with such tragedy, that this will really break his father in half. And so Reuben tries to do something that I, I suppose we can call considerate. Um, they take Joseph's coat, they dip it in blood, and they show that blood to their father because I suppose in a way, it's better for Jacob to think that his son has died than to think that his son is gone, never to be seen again, and perhaps being abused and mistreated for the rest of his life. I think it maybe Reuben's right. Maybe it is probably easier for Jacob to believe that his son has died rather than to believe that his son could be off in some land without any protection, vulnerable to anyone and being mistreated. I, I can understand that. And so in a sense, Reuben tries. Now, Reuben could have tried harder. I mean, let's be honest. Reuben could have actually said, instead of, hey, let's not kill Joseph, let's just throw him in a pit. Reuben could have said, hey, let's not kill Joseph. Like, hey, let's not kill our brother, right? I mean, that's kind of obvious and a good thing. Reuben could have, instead of saying, hey, let's not kill our brother and let's throw him in a pit, not walked away. I mean, imagine this scene, right? Your brothers want to kill your other brother and you're standing in the middle. What don't you do? How about walk away? I mean, I don't know if Reuben is dumb or if Reuben is simply not aware of his brother's deception or perhaps their 
propensity to be wicked and vile. But Reuben has kind of dropped the ball here on Joseph's behalf. And instead, Joseph is now gone forever, we assume. Um, Now, we know that Joseph is on his way down to Egypt. And going down to Egypt is one of those ideas that repeats over and over again in Scripture. I'll say a bit about that in one second. I want to remind you that we've got the opportunity to engage in some questions live here. And so if you've got any, please do type them right there in the thread below this video. Um, Monica is monitoring that thread and she can get those questions to me so that I can address them live here. Um, I will tell you, it is very strange to be teaching this class without anyone physically present here. Um, I usually love, I mean, I love seeing all your faces. Um, They're present in the chapel when we go through this class in person. Um, I always think I'm probably able to be funny when I think people will laugh at me. Now, maybe you all are laughing at home at me. That's fine because, you know, humor heals. Um, But if you've got some questions and I know it typically takes a few seconds to a minute to form a question, um, I want to encourage you to engage in this because we will have about 10 or so minutes here at the end of the class to engage in some of these questions. And I promise if you have a question, someone else has a question just like it. And so be brave, be courageous, ask a question and we'll get to them. While you are forming those questions, um, I want to talk a bit about what it means to go down to Egypt, right? To go down to Egypt is something that happens multiple times in Scripture. We see Egypt as almost this foil for not godly, and I think it makes sense if we remember that these stories are being written by people who are in exile in Babylon, Egypt represents kind of the original bad guy, right? Egypt is sort of the original bad empire that kept them in slavery. And their entire story up to the point of the exile was rooted in this idea that God sent or God through Moses saved them from slavery in Egypt and brought them to the promised land to be the people God intended them to be. Now that worked. That was a good story for a while, but then they got into exile and being in exile really changed the game for them. They began to wonder if God was being faithful to them, if they were not faithful enough to God. And it changed everything about what it meant to be Jewish. Fast forward a few hundred years and we get Jesus. And when Jesus comes on the scene, there is still some internal wrestling with the Jewish people about what it means to be Jewish, how to be most faithful to God, and the belief that God is being indeed faithful to them. All of that matters because Egypt is used over and over and over as a way to describe something that is not God or where people go in order to kind of go through a crucible of formation to become what God hopes they will become. We see that with Joseph. We see that with the Israelites and Moses. And then we, of course, see that again in the story that Matthew tells us of Jesus escaping Herod and going down into Egypt before returning um, years later. And so Egypt really has this repetitive, redundant loop that is very useful for Jewish storytellers. And we see that really begin right here. All right, so I have gotten some great questions. Brilliant, okay. We're gonna start with a question from James. Can you speak to the parallels between Joseph and Jesus? Great question. Um, I was sort of implying that um, with the discussion of Egypt. And what we see is a parallel of deliverer or deliverance that occurs over and over again in scriptures. We obviously see this with Joseph. We see this with Moses is perhaps the iconic moment in the Old Testament where deliverance occurs. But we also see that kind of deliverance echoed within the prophets even, both during and after the exile, this deliverance from God that is then put on top of Jesus. So it is absolutely no secret 
that Jesus's story is told in a way that harkens back to important stories of the past. So when Jesus is born and has to flee to Egypt to in order to not be killed by Herod, every good Jew would have heard that story as a new Moses. When Jesus goes up the mountain and is transfigured, he sees Moses and Elijah, right? But going up the mountain and receiving this incredible experience, this presence of God, the point where he is shining, everyone would have heard the story of Moses, right? Moses goes up on Sinai, comes down, and he is shining so brightly that people can't even look at him in the face. So those kinds of narrative loops are used without accident, right? People, the storytellers, are telling those stories in a particular way so that the people who hear those stories immediately recall the important stories that they already know, those stories that they grew up with from childhood, so that Jesus's identity is understood at least halfway without any sort of theological developments, right? The people at that time would have begin to, begun to identify specific amazing traits about Jesus and his story because his story was seeming to repeat those amazing stories of the past. We have a question from David that, um, is this a bridge chapter written just to get Joseph to Egypt? Um, I would say that this is not just a bridge chapter. Um, yes, functionally speaking, we need this chapter in order to get Joseph from Canaan to Egypt because ultimately the Jewish people know that the real moment is Sinai, right? The real moment is the Exodus when Moses takes them out and they receive the commandments and they hear God's word and God becomes present with them in the tent and the ark and all of that good stuff. So yes, Genesis is effectively getting everyone to that moment, but it's not just a bridge because we see, we learn some important things about Joseph that I think are valuable in understanding Joseph as an actor in this story. Joseph is important to the development of theology around what God does and does not do. Joseph's story about dreams that will ultimately gain him power and authority is really a story about faithfulness. Joseph, not, I don't think any of us would fault Joseph for getting super angry for wanting revenge, for wanting to take out the pain that he has experienced on his brothers. But what we will see in a few weeks as this story goes on, Joseph resists revenge. Joseph resists the kind of base response that so many of us might do if we are not in our better minds. And Joseph, because he resists opens up the space to allow God to do God's work, right? Joseph becomes this vessel where in his faithfulness, in his fidelity, he allows God to work. And that work is critical for what will come for the Jewish people. And so Joseph really becomes this paragon of excellence, this ideal for a good faithful person ultimately a good faithful Jew, but of course Joseph is not and will never be Jewish as we mean. Um, but Joseph does become that person that makes space for God. And, and I think that goes back to the original question um, that started off this study, which is, you know, God's plan, the idea of God's plan. I never want to take that away from anyone, but I want to invite us all to consider that God having a plan can potentially be problematic. I find it so much more helpful to think that God really allows us to screw up, that God allows us to make mistakes, but that God stays with us in every mistake that we make and remains faithful to us to come in. Anytime we allow a little crack to open, anytime we allow space for God to come in, God will jump in and help us be better 
become better, do better, make the world better. But God's love story with us is genuine. You cannot force anyone to love you. Forced love is not real. Love given freely, reciprocated freely, is what God wants from us. Because then that means our love back is genuine and true and real. And we see that Joseph really represents a the kind of willingness we have or that God hopes we have to make some space to allow God in, even through tragic circumstances or high anxiety or fear. When we let God in, God will jump in and God will help turn all of these bad things into something better. We've got a question from Michelle. Could the brothers have gone after and rescued Joseph? Um, that is a great question. I, I kind of wonder that ahead of time um, to the answer really, I mean, is it possible? Yes. Is it plausible? Uh, probably no. Um, we have to acknowledge that there aren't as many people in the world as, then as there is now. Um, so in that regard, you don't have millions and millions of people in Egypt that would make it easy to hide Joseph. But in a very real sense, these traders have purchased Joseph. Joseph is now property that they intend to sell. And I've, I've got to be honest, right? A young, attractive boy is going to sell well. And so I think that these traders would have protected their investment. They probably paid a, a fraction of what they expected to gain whenever they sold Joseph. And so if their brothers had gone after them, they could have caught them, I think. You know, if you want to talk about just logistics, right? It seems, it seems like this whole thing happened in a single day. So brothers are out there working in the field. Joseph goes to find them. They grab him, kind of beat him up, take off the robe, throw him in a pit, and have lunch. At some point after lunch, these, this caravan comes by. They sell Joseph to the caravan. Reuben comes back. Reuben's heart breaks because he knows that his father's heart is going to break. And in that moment, Joseph may have been gone for a couple hours, so theoretically, could they have chased down this caravan? Sure, right? They would have traveled much lighter, grab, I don't know, a camel, a horse. I'm not sure what they had, um, but something in order to kind of chase down this caravan that would have likely been large and moving slowly, lumbering along. But if you think about it, these traders were hearty people. These were like Wild West cowboys, they're traveling a long way over very uncertain territory where they have to be ready at a moment's notice to defend themselves. These boys and young men who are working the field at their family farm really cannot go up against these kind of desperados, these people who know how to defend themselves. And so could they have gone off to rescue Joseph? Yeah. Could they have actually rescued Joseph? I'm going to have to say no. Very highly unlikely. All right, Elizabeth, got a question. Is this story the same in Jewish history and stories? Um, yeah, that's a great question because I think it's a really excellent question to always ask, how does a story like this differ in different traditions? I am obviously speaking to you out of the Christian tradition. So for me, I read all of these Old Testament stories necessarily through the lens of being Christian. Um, in the Jewish tradition, there is significant amount of theology that goes on, this midrash and all of this commentary about all of the stories. And Joseph is as important a story in Jewish tradition as any story. Huge amounts have been written on Joseph. And so the story in the Hebrew scripture is this story, right? Genesis is Genesis. But the interpretation of this story changes as often within Judaism as it would within Christianity. I mean, I, I know some of you are watching this who don't go to St. Michael, and it's very likely that Whichever church you go to, your pastor, priest, 
preacher would interpret the story of Joseph very differently than me. Um, I like the way I interpret it. (laughs) Um, But I think that there are faithful ways to draw different interpretations. I also think there are closed-minded ways to try to interpret stories, and I I can't necessarily say they're quite as good, Um, but there are genuinely faithful, open-minded, generous ways to interpret the story that differ from me. And so I think in the same way, in the Jewish tradition, their um, interpretations would differ as well. Um, Oh, John asked a question. Remind us, how do Jews understand Christianity today? (laughs) Um... Unfortunately, John, I think that the way I have to answer that question is not going to be satisfying. Um, If you were to ask a similar question, how do Christians understand Christianity today? I think you would know that, you know, where anyone has an opinion about Christianity, their opinion is going to be different than the other person's. Um, And I think Jews are about the same. You know, what's the old um, Jewish joke? Wherever there are two Jews, there are three opinions. So I think, you know, very often, like with Christians, um, you can't say anything about a whole global tradition, right? You can't say Christianity is and be right for many. Um, In the same way, it's difficult for me to say that um, Jewish theologians would understand Christianity in a particular way. Um, I will say that for most of the Jewish people we know well, they would be sort of progressive Jews. And progressive Jews understand Christianity as uh, a tradition that inherits um, much of their own tradition um, and that we have— it would not be fair to say that we have misunderstood anything, but I would say that modern Jews and Christians, in a very real sense, are well related and understand that we are seeing God in a way that is very strongly linked and that we have a whole lot more in common in the way that we understand God and live in the world than what divides us. Um, And I think that as our world progresses and fewer and fewer people genuinely root themselves to any kind of faith identity or church life or faith community, that more and more those of us who do define ourselves by being a part of a faith community have a lot more in common with others that define themselves as being a part of a faith community, even if it's not exactly the same as our faith community, then for all those who find that faith identity and faith communities are unnecessary. I think that the ground of being, how we really understand ourselves, is markedly different if we ground ourselves or root ourselves in a life of faith than those who do not. And I think that's the last question that I see. Um, It is 1129, which means we've just about reached the end of our study today. Um, I wanna thank you all for being with me again. It is a real pleasure and a privilege for me to get to speak with you like this. Um, As I noted before, I'd love to hear from you. So if you've not commented yet in the comments below, please drop a little note in there. Let me know that you were here. Um, And we will be back next week. Even though it is Holy Week next week, we will have our Bible study live at 1030 a.m. on Wednesday, and we will continue that through the first week of May. Um, A quick note of promo, um, St. Michael will begin Holy Week this Sunday. We'll have our 9 and 11 o'clock services on Palm Sunday, and we will have services at 7 p.m., every night of Holy Week. That's Monday through Saturday at the Vigil at 7 p.m., and they will be um, offered live here on Facebook and streamed on our website, stmichael.org. And you can 
also plan for a great noonday family and children experience of Good Friday, where we will actually walk through Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and then point toward Easter in a way that is meant for our youngest children. So this that's the service that you can share with all the children in your life. And so plug in with us. We'll be Palm Sunday 9-11 and Easter 9-11, and then Monday through Saturday, services every night at 7 p.m. Visit our website, stmichael.org, to learn more. Um, stmichael.org slash holyweek will give you all of that information, and I look forward to seeing you all there. Know that you are in my prayers, and I hope I am in yours. I definitely feel them, and I hope you all stay safe and healthy. God bless you all. Bye.